Welcome to the Functional Nutrition Podcast. I'm your host, Aaron Holt. I'm a functional medicine nutritionist with a feisty attitude in over a decade of clinical experience. I work with women all over the world through my online programs, and I'm also the founder of the Functional Nutrition Academy, a 12-month practitioner mentorship where I help other nutrition pros level up with functional medicine methodologies. I've got a bone to pick with diet culture and the conventional healthcare model that are both systematically failing so many of us. Creating a new model is my life's work, and this is what the show's all about. Please keep in mind this podcast is created for educational purposes only and should never be used as a replacement for medical diagnosis or treatment. If you like what you hear today, I'd love for you to subscribe, leave a review in iTunes, share with a friend, and keep coming back for more. Thanks for joining me. Now let's dive deep. Hey friends, Erin here with Kyle. We're back with our fourth episode, which feels kind of like a major victory after last week's snafu. Um, mm-hmm. <laughs> I We submitted the podcast and the following day our host crashed. So <laughs> that's great. That's no really big deal. Great. I was trying not to get stressed out about it. Honestly, in the wake of like real tragedy and disaster, it's hard to get upset about something as minor as that, but Excellent we're back on point. track. Yeah. We're here and we're smiling. Um, first, we want to shout out to everybody who has subscribed and left a review. Honestly, you guys, so stoked to see that. It really, really does help to spread the word and the feedback that we've been getting has been so fun. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, so we're just happy to be here. So this episode is brought to you by Fueled and Fit, my 21-day nutrition and lifestyle program. If you're into all this food information we're talking about, this is a really great way to immerse yourself in it for three solid weeks and see how all this information applies to you specifically, and you get to do it all under the guidance of a nutritionist. This program costs less than a consultation with me, and you get a ton of resources. I'm donating 15% of proceeds to United for Puerto Rico to help rebuild after their devastation. And the next live program starts Monday, October 16th. It will be the only one I offer this fall. So you can grab all the information on my website, erinholtshealth.com, and I'll also link to it in our show notes. And the fact that I'm saying show notes right now makes me sound like such a professional (laughs) podcaster. (laughs) So Kyle, what's up? What's going on? (sighs) I'm happy that it's fall um, and that things just, you know, start to slow down a bit. Um, my self-care this week was cleaning up my damn inbox. Um, I think everyone can relate to this. It just gets so overwhelming after a while. And you're like, when did I subscribe to all of these things? I I know. I know. So I use this website called Unroll Me and it lets you go through all your emails, promotions, anything that you might have um, even inadvertently subscribe to and then it automatically unsubscribes you, you so you stop getting emails from them. Um, I did it once before and it was awesome but it just starts to fill back up again so I had to do it again and it's free. It makes a huge difference and yeah that's my little slice of self-care this week. What about you? So I've used Unroll before and it's funny that you brought it up because I actually tried to, to do it this week and for some reason it didn't work but I've just been like I know I've been so inundated with email so I have two emails one is for work and that doesn't come into my phone that's like my way of 
oh, trying to create smart. boundaries. Yeah. yeah, I guess. Um, but my <laughs> professional one, or excuse me, my my what's the opposite of professional? Personal. There it is. Um, that one does come in. And so it's like a lot of newsletters and appointments and stuff. But it sometimes, like lately, I've been so overwhelmed with how busy it is that I just haven't been checking at all. And I like miss some important ones. So I need to clean that up because it just gets stressful. Yeah, um, even if you take a day off and you're like, uh, you know what, I'm not going to do it today. Then the next day you just have twice as much. You just feel so, <laughs> It's like cleaning out your closet. You feel so good when you yes. unsubscribe. But then on the flip side of the coin, I have a newsletter. When I get unsubscribed, so I'm like, <laughs> what did I say? <laughs> what good did point. I do? Good point. <laughs> so there's actually um, Diane Sanfilippo. She's from the Balanced Bites podcast. And she... Um, has always said this little tip, like you can create folders. And so for newsletters or something that you know you want to read later, you can like put them in folders to kind of like come back to, which is, which is a good idea. Yeah. Yeah, That way you can go read them. Like when you're sitting waiting for an appointment instead of like trolling Instagram or reading people magazine or reading people magazine, right? Like stalking your (laughs) ex-boyfriend. I don't do that. (laughs) I don't. Um, All right. So what else has been going on? I'm trying to think. Oh, I want to, I do want to shout out to Oceanside Physical Therapy. I've probably have already talked about them before, but they're magicians. I've been under a lot of stress lately. And I hate to even say that because it's all good stress and it's all self-inflicted. I've just been pretty busy, like bouncing from one project to the next. And I'm very, very overscheduled, which I don't like. Um, so when I get stressed out, I start to feel it physically in my body. And so I've been getting a lot of joint pain all week. So I went to see them. I've been working with them for probably about eight months now. And like I left and I was like totally pain free. It's incredible. They're so good. I see the owner whose name is Kristen. And then I also see Emily Lerner. And they're very different than your average physical therapist. They're much more holistic minded. So the first appointment I ever had with them, um, Emily asked me about my diet and Mm. talked to me about pain science and about the nervous system and just like crazy stuff. It wasn't just doing like exercises on a yoga mat. You know what I mean? Yeah, that's awesome. It's awesome. So I'm going to have Kristen on the podcast at some point so we can talk to, you know, talk to her about some specifics. But what I did on uh, last week was dry needling. Have you ever heard of that? I have. Okay. Have you ever gotten it done? I've I've gotten acupuncture done. I've never gotten dry needling done. So they're the same. It's different, but the, I think they're the same needles. But they don't. You don't leave them in as long as you would acupuncture. So acupuncture, they throw the needles in, and then you like sit there for like I don't know thirty to yeah. sixty minutes. So these the needles are in quickly, and it's my understanding that there's two different ways to approach it. The first is you can go right into like the muscle, which is more like trigger point work. But the way that Kristen does it, she goes into the nerve, which sounds terrible, <laughs> but it's not, it's, it's crazy. It, it's like, it doesn't feel awful. Honestly, within like the first three needles she put in me, I felt my entire body relax. It was, it's just, I respond really well to it. And then I left and I was pain free. I'm like, how, wow. how did you even do that? Um, so it's cool. Cause she does talk a lot about how chronic pain really is relates to the nervous system and I got to see that like I'm like oh I'm stressed out I'm in pain then you call my nervous system and I'm out of pain it's pretty yeah pretty cool heads up you guys net uh not next Saturday Saturday November 4th Kristen and I are going to teach a gut 
workshop um, and how gut health relates to chronic pain and pelvic pain. And I guess it's one out of three women experience pelvic pain. So it's a really common issue. So if you're local, come check us out there. It's going to be a pretty awesome workshop. Kristen's a pretty cool chick. All right. So that's, that's what I've been doing. Sticking needles in my body. Today, <laughs> today though, we're going to answer a listener question and talk a lot about a lot. dairy. Yeah, we're going to do a lot of talking. Is it a health food? Is it not? And the specific question we chose is kind of all over the place, which is why I love it because it's so reflective of how we feel about food. We're like, is it okay? Is it not? Is it healthy? What's the deal with this? What's the heck is that? You know, we're like, somebody just tell us, give us the answers. So Kyle, let's hear the specific question. Okay. Talk to me about raw milk versus grass-fed milk and kefir. What gives? Is goat cheese okay if you have dairy issues? Also, I love chocolate, but doesn't chocolate have dairy? Does it really? All right. So there's a lot here. The first and, and foremost is the way that Kyle pronounces kefir. I actually just um, did a YouTube video before we started recording, and it was how to pronounce kefir or kefir, and it's and it was just some person saying kefir, okay. kefir, 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 like in different octaves, just over and over again. So I think it's kefir. Um, but I don't okay. know. I, that's, that's how just... I used to say it, and somebody made fun of me, and I was felt so embarrassed that I went to saying kefir but you know what i i did the same thing with cacao for this episode cacao it was a guy just going cacao cacao okay like a parrot (laughs) all right so we're gonna pick all of this apart we'll explain raw milk what grass-fed means we'll talk about conventional dairy fermented dairy goat dairy sheep dairy lactose intolerance and different types of protein in dairy so it's going to be an episode But if I had a nickel for every time I had to explain this stuff, you know, it's just, it's a really common question. People, people want to know. And Kyle and I strongly believe that this info should be in the hands of every consumer. So we're going to tackle it. One question I'm going to answer right out of the gate though is chocolate. (laughs) Yes. Yeah. I want to give this poor person some relief. Chocolate (laughs) does not inherently contain dairy. So cocoa or cacao. Cacao. Cacao bean doesn't contain dairy. Oftentimes, dairy is added in. Milk chocolate obviously contains milk. But go for dark chocolate and just be sure to check the ingredient list for milk or milk solids. That's sometimes how it's listed. Brands that I personally like are Equal Exchange, Taza, and Endangered Species. I always try to buy organic and fair trade. And I eat dark chocolate every night, so I don't I don't play. I don't mess around with this. It's like the one food that I will freak out about if it's not in the house. Mm-hmm. Um, are you a chocolate eater? Absolutely. Every single night. And I, I've i <laughs> never... Aggressive. Every single night. Like, aggressive. Um, yeah, and it's not like a corner of a bar either. You know, I definitely let myself enjoy some some dark chocolate. But I don't... I've never really liked milk. So it's, it's always really been dark chocolate for me, 80% or more. Um, my favorites are Extreme Dark, 88% from Equal Exchange. The Blackout, 85% from Alter Ego. Both of those are organic and fair trade. And there's a new brand. I, I think it's I think it's fairly new. Eating Evolved. Um, and they have a 100% cacao 
bar with coconut that has no added sugar and I've heard it tastes really good. So it's not in any stores around me and I'm just, I keep filling up my shopping cart on their website and then backing out at the last yeah, minute. That sounds um, all bad. Yep. But it's it so I think it's gonna be a little bit bitter because it's a hundred percent, but they added vanilla and coconut to it to cut the bitterness down. So all right, so that was the chocolate question. Let's move on to milk. That eating it of all I really want to try that eating evolved. I know. But be, it's not in stores, like you said, and it's not on Amazon Prime, which means I have not yet consumed it. But exactly. I did they do have it on Thrive Market, so I need to place another order on Thrive Market because oh. it's been a while. Yeah, for those of you guys who don't know about Thrive Market, it's basically like an online health food store that offers discounts. I'll link to it in the show notes. How many times can I say that in this episode? Show notes. <laughs> um, but I would definitely check it out because it's like your one-stop shop. And it's free shipping over $49 and it comes right to your house. So pretty jazzy. All right. For the sake of simplicity, we're going to keep the initial dairy discussion confined to cow's milk because honestly, that's what most of us are consuming in this country on the reg. Healthy cows are those that are allowed to roam on a pasture and eat grass. So this is the cow that you see in advertisements and in children's books, okay? It's just like a cow roaming the landscape. And actually, my husband and I just went to the Azores. Those are islands off the coast of Portugal. Um, we were in Sao Miguel, which has a pretty robust dairy industry. And the their entire landscape, it's a lot of green, a lot of grass, was peppered with cows. There was just hmm. cows everywhere. Yeah. I kept making Scott pull over so I could take pictures. He's like, we don't need any more pictures of cows. An entire photo album. And these there are all the cows. <laughs> Azor cows. But I was like, this is the way that it's supposed to be. This is how it's supposed to work. Like, look, um, it's not the way that it is in our country. So when a cow is raised on pasture in a proper diet, it reduces the need for antibiotics, first of all, because the animals are generally more healthy. I just taught a workshop last weekend on gut health, and one of the biggest things I came across in my research was how much overuse of antibiotics is really devastating to our gut microbiota. And we, we've we heard this, like we know that it can kill off gut bugs, but it can do so for like a very long time and like can really impact some things. And sure, we're definitely taking far too many oral antibiotics, but we're also getting them through the milk we drink, which is another issue. Now, healthy cows eating a healthy diet produce healthy milk. It sounds pretty simple, right? Pretty simple, pretty straightforward. So traditionally, milk is taken right from a cow and then it's consumed as is. And this milk contains the fat soluble vitamins, vitamin A, vitamin D, vitamin K2, which is different than vitamin K1. These vitamins are pretty hard to come by in the standard American diet. That's the diet that most of us eat. Real milk also contains fat to help you absorb those fat soluble vitamins. Because remember, you guys, fat soluble vitamins require fat to be utilized in your body. It's one of the reasons that low fat diets are so silly. Traditional milk is raw um, or unpasteurized. That's what raw means. Without being pasteurized, milk contains enzymes that help you digest the proteins and sugar in dairy. Okay, so 
since you mentioned pasteurized, I do think it's important to just note that the reason why milk was pasteurized to begin with was to prevent foodborne illnesses, which is done when you kill the microorganisms in food by heating. So this became a mandatory practice in the early 1900s. And because of that, infections like TB, scarlet fever, typhoid fever, all of which were passed through raw milk consumption, were nearly eradicated in the U.S. But dairy itself actually contributes a very small amount to the overall number of foodborne illnesses each year, especially when you consider how much dairy is consumed in the U.S. on a daily basis. Um, So properly aged raw milk cheeses have never really been considered a huge contributor to foodborne illnesses. But we have had plenty of outbreaks from pasteurized milk. So there's actually more of a risk involved if you were eating seafood than from raw milk. So why would somebody even choose raw milk in the first place? Well, a lot of people who are lactose intolerant... um, can end end up tolerating raw milk because the enzyme that is killed during the heating process of pasteurization is what you need to break down the lactose. So that's why, you know, some people who are even normally lactose intolerant can do really well having raw dairy. They end up tolerating it. Um, you might live in a state where it's a, you're allowed to sell raw milk. This is not um, an every state thing. North Carolina is one of those states. At the farmer's market, I go to the North Asheville tailgate market. There's actually a woman there selling raw milk from Jersey cows mostly every week. Um, so if you do end up wanting to try raw milk, I would still strongly encourage you to look into the practices of that supplier, visit the farm, you know, check out the cows, just make sure that what you're consuming is from a reputable source because raw milk still has some risk involved. So you don't just want to, you know, be making like bathtub milk here. <laughs> Gross. <laughs> I'm going to I'm going to piggyback on that because there's a lot of fear around raw milk and I mean even when we were introducing dairy to Hattie for the first time I was like, "Ugh, I was kind of like sketched out about it." But I think a lot of that fear comes from the FDA. They they have a page on their website ent- entitled The Dangers of Raw Milk. It's like dun dun dun. Yeah. On this page, they say that pasteurization does not reduce milk's nutritional value. So they're saying that conventional pastured milk is the same as raw milk. And if you're talking just about protein, fat, and carbs, then yeah, they're probably right. But we know there's a lot more to nutrition than just macronutrients. And pasteurization does kill off bacteria, but this also includes beneficial bacteria and enzymes like lactase that you just pointed out, Kyle. And these things are really super important. In the book, The Dirt Cure, Dr. Maya Sheetreet-Klein, she's a pediatric neurosurgeon, brings up a really valid point. The CDC and American Academy of Pediatrics advise against heating breast milk because we know that it kills off the good things in the milk. So wouldn't the same be true for cow's milk? Pasteurization Mm. is just heating it. So wouldn't, you know, like, wouldn't that be the same, the same logic? But like you said, there really was a need for pasteurization back in the day when it started, and there still is a need for it given how we raise conventional dairy cattle. It started around the time of the Industrial Revolution. This is kind of just like fun history. 
families were moving off of farms and into cities and they were so used to drinking milk um, that they they wanted to keep drinking milk so then cows were moved off of farms and into cities but they weren't pasturing out on a farm anymore right they weren't had didn't have access to that grass and that land instead they were held in confined pretty filthy conditions and they were fed industry waste products they were sick their milk was sick and so there was a need to kill off the bacteria resulting from all of that filth but don't be fooled pasteurizing the milk doesn't didn't improve the quality of the milk it just covered up how sick and dirty the milk actually was i know it's gross (laughs) But the grossest part to me is that this is still going on. Like in 2017 in the United States, most dairy cows in this country are raised in confinement dairies. And it's a type of concentrated animal feeding operation, often called CAFOs. They're fed GMO grain, corn, soy. Again, these are industry waste products. And then they rely heavily on supplementation because they're not getting the nutrition they actually need. And of course, this makes less nutritious milk unsanitary conditions plus an improper diet create unhealthy cows and this increases the need for antibiotics and since we want these cows to grow bigger faster and therefore cheaper growth hormones are also added into the mix yeah so in addition to the growth hormones just grain feeding is resulting in three times as much milk production compared to pasture feeding. So that's that's why they're always kind of going for the grain first. Three times as much more. Wow. They also have, um, but pasture-fed has higher omega-3s to omega-6s than with grain feeding. And that's what you want. You want more omega-3s and you want less omega-6s, which are the pro-inflammatory. Yeah, our, our standard American diet is so flip-flopped in terms of our ratio of omega-6 to omega-3. So the last thing we want is even more of those omega-6s. Oh, I actually, I didn't, um, I didn't realize that grain produced more, more milk. So yeah, pump them up with all the stuff that's going to make them Mm -hmm. milk. Um, crazy. So anyway, after cows are milked and we're not going to get into the horrors of feedlot milking here, but if you, if you're interested in that, you can certainly Google that on your own time. It's not good. Yeah. You're not going to want popcorn for that one like that. Yeah. It's, it's bad stuff out there. Um, the milk is heavily processed after, after cows are milk. And I really want to say this, like if I could like bold this, I would do it. Conventional dairy is not a whole food. It is a highly processed food. So I'll go through the processing quickly. First, conventional milk is pasteurized. We already talked about that. And remember, it just involves super high heat, but we need to do this because it hides the sick milk. It doesn't make it healthier. It just disguises it. Second up, it's homogenized, which means that fat is emulsified and, and distributed evenly throughout the final product. If you've ever bought milk from a farm or yogurt straight from a farm, you'll see that there's, um, a bit of cream at the top, that's because it hasn't been homogenized. It's a pretty intense process, so more processing involved. And then finally, it's stripped of fat. And as I say this, just watch the one lonely teardrop (laughs) fall down my face. Because people are terrified of fat, the naturally occurring fat in milk is removed to make skim or low-fat milk. And guess what else gets stripped out with the fat? Naturally occurring fat-soluble vitamins. That's why these nutrients have to be synthetically added back in. 
This is one of the craziest things about our food system. So we strip out the real stuff and then we add fake stuff back in. And the fake stuff isn't as the same as the real stuff. It's low quality. It's less bioavailable. That means your body doesn't really know what to do with it. Um, milk is often fortified with vitamin D2, which is not the the active form of the vitamin and your body doesn't know how to use it and in fact it might actually block the absorption of the more bioavailable form in your body so anytime you see skim milk or low-fat milk just think bye-bye nutrition yeah that's I, I just always think of like water watery milk when I think of skim or low-fat which is I mean I, I grew up on that so I can attest yeah. to that um, the other thing that I thought of for the difference between pastured and grain-fed cows is the CLA. So that's conjugated linoleic acid, and it's a fatty acid that's been shown to have positive effects on lean body mass, immune function, um, and then your risk for diabetes, heart attack, and breast cancer. So with pastured cows, you get five times more CLA than with grain-fed cows. I just feel like that's, I mean, it's like you get three three times more milk production with the grain-fed, five times more CLA with the pastured. It's just, I feel like these are large amounts that people don't know about. So yeah, well, we're sacrificing nutrition for the sake of like pumping out more food is yeah. really what it boils down Quantity to. Quantity so getting... instead of quality. Oh, for sure. It's always the food industry is all about quantity over quality. We so we're getting more more omega three and more CLA with with pastured cows. So people do honestly, they ask me that a lot. Is grass fed that much better? Yes. It absolutely is. It is so much more nutritious. Totally, totally, totally. So what about organic milk? Because I think most people, as long as they see that organic label, they think that that's the healthiest option. That's a, that's a good question. Um, so the milk that you see in the grocery store can go through all of those processes I just talked about. So pasteurization, homogenization, fat stripping, and then they can still have the organic label slapped on it. So everyone thinks it's like this glorious, healthy, whole food, right? Everybody's like giving this organic milk to their kids being like, it's glorious. But the organic label means that cows were fed a 100% organic diet. This does not mean that the cows ate a proper diet of grass. It simply means that the grains they ate were organic. So the organic label means producers didn't use antibiotics or growth hormones, which is good, but it does not mean that drugs, pesticide residues, or other synthetic substances won't be found in the product. The organic label means that cows had access to the outdoors, but it does not mean that cows were allowed to pasture. And when we say, when we keep talking about pasture, it means that they were allowed to walk on grass and eat the grass. So if you think about milk as good, better, best, the organic milk would be a good option, especially when compared to non-organic conventional dairy, but it's really far from the best. So I say grass-fed or bust. Yeah, for sure. Um, I I think we should get a little bit into the politics of milk here, just just a smidge. Yep, like why is it so heavily pushed on us? So what do you what do you think about that? Yeah, do it up. Okay, so the National Dairy Checkoff Program was this was originally a voluntary program that dairy farmers could contribute some of the profits that they would make towards promoting increased dairy consumption. So this program is now mandatory. So. 15 cents for every 100 pounds of milk is spent 
towards promotions like the Got Milk campaign, new product development, partnerships with McDonald's, Taco Bell, Pizza Hut, Coca-Cola, and promoting dairy consumption in nutrition education. So I think this is important to know so you understand why there is this somewhat constant influx of marketing geared towards milk consumption. It's because there's a constant flow of cash to promote that. Um, and one of the biggest messages we're told is not only that milk is part of a healthy diet, but that your child needs it to grow. So mm -hmm. while there is a human requirement for dietary calcium, there is not a requirement for dairy. Um, and in terms of bone health, this is one of the craziest things is the nations with the highest dairy and calcium intake have the highest osteoporosis rates and related fractures. So that like, Yes, it's not what you would think. Um, no. And for bone health, exercise and vitamin D are key, but excessive calcium or dairy are not. That's, that's actually a really good point about calcium because most people think we need milk for calcium. Yeah. Um, even Hattie's pediatrician, this was just not, this was not that long ago. He asked if Hattie drinks milk and I'm like, no, she doesn't. And he's like, well, where is she getting her calcium? So I like listed off like 15 foods that she eats that has calcium. He's like, uh, okay, well, milk is still really good. Like, okay. <laughs> okay. All right. Thanks, sir. Thank you. So where can people get calcium if they're not consuming dairy? First of all, sardines and other bone in fish. I finally tried them. Sardines. You, you try, you I did? tried them. I mixed what them into think? tuna fish and I made tuna salad just like you told me to do. And I loved it. I didn't think it tasted any different than tuna salad. I know. People are so freaked out about sardines, but they don't. If you like tuna, you it's like pretty much the same taste. Yeah, I was, I was happy. Well, that's awesome. Okay, so any type of bone in fish, um, the bones contain calcium. They also contain vitamin D, so really great source of, of calcium there. Bone broths made from bones, um, nuts and seeds like almonds. But the thing here is that in order to access those nutrients, that calcium and other minerals, it's important to soak them, sprout them, um, dehydrate them. That's just going to reduce some anti-nutrients and again, make those nutrients more bioavailable to your body. And I'm saying this specifically for people who are using nuts and seeds as a source of calcium. Just be conscientious of that. Um, tahini is another good source. This is made from ground sesame seeds. And then your green leafies like kale, spinach, collards, mustard greens, turnip greens, all that good stuff. And just keep in mind that variety is king and the more food sources you can get your nutrients from, the better. So you're not just relying on one foods for one nutrient. You know what I mean? Yeah. That makes sense. Mm -hmm. Okay. And then in terms of calcium, it also requires cofactors for your body to metabolize it. Um, that means other nutrients help your body to absorb that nutrients. That's what a cofactor is. And two of these nutrients are vitamin D and vitamin K2, which remember, those are some of the vitamins we remove when we strip away fat. So you can just see how silly it all it all starts to become. And Kyle, since you mentioned politics, I'm getting like fired up and I'm chugging seltzer. So I hope I don't <laughs> keep like burping. <laughs> I keep burping away from the microphone. So hopefully this doesn't translate as like grossness on the on the podcast. But I don't want to barrel over the whole hormone thing. I wasn't going to bring this up. But now I'm like, I think this is just wicked good information of people for people to have. So 
the the hormone in milk thing really is a huge concern it's affecting our health and it's especially affecting the health of young girls and there's a lot of dirty politics involved i'm sure that everyone has heard of rbgh recombinant bovine growth hormone do you think that's a pretty standard people know what that is i i'm gonna say no so i think it's good that you're talking about it okay so it's a it's a hormone as mentioned, um, helps dairy cows produce more milk. Oftentimes, uh, babies are taken away from the moms at a really young age, and this creates all kinds of um, issues. So this hormone helps them produce more milk. Um, And it's a Monsanto product. So I think back to the movie Usual Suspects when Verbal Kint says the greatest trick the devil ever pulled was convincing Mm. the world he didn't exist. To me, that's Monsanto. Like Monsanto is Kaiser Soze. They're not necessarily a household name. Not everybody really knows who Monsanto is and what they do. And yet they control our food system like top to bottom. And a lot of what they're introducing into our food system is making us very, very sick. It's making our planet and other living things on it very, very sick. And unfortunately, they have a great deal of control without any checks and balances. So I'm going to use RBGH as an example to explain what I mean here. These hormones, like I mentioned, are given to dairy cows to maintain the milk production. And at the same time that we're using them, puberty onset has changed so kids are hitting puberty way earlier it's it's such a thing that the american academy of pediatrics actually changed the lower limit so now it's considered normal for seven-year-old girls and nine-year-old boys to hit puberty even even younger for african-american children so rather than us step back and say like hey something weird is going on here we just like smoke screen it to pretend that everything is fine and normal just like look away look away this is normal but please understand that there is a huge difference between common and normal and a seven-year-old girl getting her period is not normal we can't just blame the milk, though. There's There's been a lot of synthetic hormones added to our environment, everything from plastics to personal care products. Side note, this is actually one of the reasons that I champion the mission of Beauty Counter. It's a company that not only makes safe skincare, but tries to get the toxins out of body care products across the board. Anyway, these hormones are everywhere, but they're also in our milk supply. And as Kyle said, milk is pushed on us, right? We think we have to feed it to our kids to help them be healthy. But why are those hormones even there? And like, how did this get approved? That's the big question. And this is really where it gets even more maddening. And I'm going to read this from straight out of the Dirt Cure. It's that book that I referenced earlier, because she explains it so succinctly um, and just kind of breaks down the situation. So the revolving door between our government and Monsanto allowed RBGH to happen. For the FDA to determine whether Monsanto's RBGH was safe, Monsanto was required to submit a scientific report. Margaret Miller, who is one of Monsanto's researchers, assembled the report. So she's responsible for the bulk of the report. Shortly before this report was submitted, though, This woman left Monsanto and was hired by the FDA. Guess what her first job for the FDA was? To determine whether or not to approve the report she herself wrote for Monsanto. So of course she reported it, or of course she approved it, right? So basically Monsanto approved its own report. 
And then furthermore, deciding whether RBGH-derived milk must be labeled fell under the jurisdiction of another FDA official, Michael Taylor, who previously worked as a lawyer for a firm representing Monsanto. Oh, my God. No labeling was required, right? Shock of all shocks. This is a a quote from Monsanto's director of corporate communications. Monsanto should not have to vouchsafe the safety of biotech food. Our interest is in selling as much of it as possible. Assuring its safety is the FDA's job. So, well, 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 what a tangled web we weave. When I say things like our government is in bed with Monsanto, this is what I'm talking about. This is what I mean. I... I'm so taken aback by all of this, and I I just want everyone to know that like this is the first time that I'm hearing about it in put in this way, and I mean it's it's just crazy, and I and I try to listen to puberty at age seven or nine is just insane. I mean, I feel like I was still eating sand when I was seven. Like this, yeah, just... I was binge watching Nickelodeon. <laughs> I was eating cheese. Still coloring outside of the lines. Like there was, I was, that was not, that's, I was, I was not. uh, I know. I know. And I mean, just as a, like a, as a refresher, puberty essentially means your body is fertile, right? Like it's ready to make babies at six years old, six years old, seven years old. Come on. Yeah. So, okay. So, um, wow. All right. (laughs) Um, not everybody can even tolerate dairy. So I'm going to talk about that now. Um, and just try to like, (laughs) yeah, just smooth segue. Um, so there are two proteins found in dairy, casein, which makes up 80% and the other 20% is whey, the curd and the whey. Um, whey. Yeah. Whey. So whey protein is more water, less concentrated, and a lot of times it's just thrown out when you're making cheese or yogurt. So, And that's an interesting fact because be- when it's discarded um, in yogurts like Faye and Chobani, you're actually creating an environmental burden because you're yeah, just Yeah, that's like one out. of like the the biggest downfalls of the the Greek yogurt fad is that like we're creating a ton of waste. And people are looking into like you know, how do we, how do we do with it? Like, what do we do with it? But, um, it's like, it's pretty bad. Yeah. That I, I had never thought of that before. So that was a good, you know, point to make to other people. Cause I doubt they're thinking of that too. Um, and then casein, casein protein is the curds, but that has a really low compatibility with human digestion. So lactose is broken down by the enzyme lactase. This is the enzyme that's killed during pasteurization. And our genes actually turn this enzyme off in the majority of humans after age seven. But your ancestry and racial backgrounds dictate your ability to produce this enzyme. So for example, 70% of African Americans, 50% of Mexican Americans, and 90% of Asians are lactose intolerant. Compared to people whose ancestry is from Northern Europe, where only about 15% have lactose intolerance. So we're looking at anywhere from like 25 to 90% of the world's population could be deficient in the enzyme that breaks down lactose. So, yeah, and just let me interrupt for a second yeah. because it the more the more research that comes out, it kind of you know there's no one perfect diet for everybody, but a lot of it can can have um, can have a lot to do with your ancestry, like where you originally came from, like what foods are right for you. Yeah, yeah, completely. Um, 
And most people end up thinking GI stuff when they think of lactose intolerance. And that is definitely true for a lot of people, but there are so many other symptoms other than that. Colds, headaches, sinus problems, asthma, eczema, bloating, gas, itchy skin, acne, which I know a lot of people associate with dairy, um, nausea, diarrhea. And the symptoms can show up anywhere from 30 minutes to two days after consumption. So the tricky part is not only could you be having a reaction up to two days later, but a lot of these symptoms are the same for other food allergies and sensitivities. And it can all manifest itself in in different ways that aren't always obvious to us. Um, And this is why a lot of people who believe that they're lactose intolerant actually have other GI issues going on like SIBO, celiac, IBS. So those people are not going to see a huge benefit from eliminating dairy alone. So it's, that's, that's a good thing to note. So if you eliminate dairy and, and not much changes, there's something else going on and it's, it's worth doing some more digging. So just to clarify, the lactose intolerance refers to the reaction to the milk sugar. And then a true allergy, are, that's to the different proteins in the casein or the whey. Yeah, and you can be be sensitive to either casein or whey or both. There's different types of casein you can be sensitive to. So yeah, um, there's just like a lot in milk our bodies can respond to. And not all casein is created equal. The type of casein protein in modern dairy is called A1 beta casein. It's found in milk of modern varieties of dairy cows, like the Holstein cow. That's the those are the black and white ones. Um, now we breed cows much differently than we used to. Like back in the day, farmers would they would have wanted to produce high fat, creamy, butter rich milk because that's where the nutrients are, right? They wanted super nutrient dense milk, but now the modern Holstein has been bred to produce large quantities of skim milk because that's what the average American wants. And these cows produce only A1 beta casein. And as Kyle said, this protein is not compatible with human digestion. Yeah. And the other cool thing about, or not cool thing, but I thought that this was really, really interesting. This this was surprising when I learned about this was that the A1 protein can actually split off to form an opioid, which is why so many people say that cheese is addictive. Like you can just, it's one of those foods that you can have breakfast, lunch, and dinner, and you don't even realize that you're eating it all day. Yeah. I've had people tell me like for years now that like they're addicted to cheese. Like I cannot yep. give up cheese. I and was this absolutely is exactly one of them. Why. Yep. Yeah. This is exactly why. And it's why you can, you can, uh, when you eat cheese, you might like feel really relaxed or calm. It's that opioid activity. Um, there's another type of casein called A2 beta casein, and this is much easier to digest for many people. So A2 protein predominates in Jersey cows, Guernsey cows, and then most Asian and African cow breeds. But the problem with that is that it's kind of hard to find. The good news is that both goat and sheep milk are 100% A2. So if you don't tolerate cow dairy, you can always try goat, goat or sheep milk or their cheese or yogurt. Some people who can't do cow dairy but can tolerate uh, goat dairy, no problem. And so this isn't explained by the lactose because goat milk has just almost as much lactose as cow's milk. So it's really that protein, that casein difference. And then another interesting thing between these two types of casein is the color of the cow. So most Holstein cows, like I said, are black and white or red and white, while most Jersey cows are brown, tan, um, white, or dark brown. So the next time you drive by a farm, just pay attention to the color of cows um, and see, see what you see. 
there's a lot of factors to be accounted for when it comes to food compatibility. And when I say that, I mean the the ability for a food to nourish a person. And that's so individual. But it really does appear that if we stick to the older varieties of food and we stick to the traditional food preparation methods, it does tend to create less food reactions in people. Yeah. So what we mean by traditional preparations of dairy are cultured dairy products that have been fermented with bacteria and that increases the shelf life, produces that tangy flavor, and it's easier to digest than conventional dairy. So some examples of fermented dairy are yogurt, kefir, and some sour creams. Um, fermented dairy is mostly free of lactose, but will still have the different types of casein which can make you tolerate them more or less. And kefir is a fermented milk drink that you can find in, in a lot of grocery stores. And it basically tastes like a drinkable Greek yogurt, but thinner. I've also seen um, cultured butter. And I think that, mm-hmm. is, that is also fermented as well. I've never, I've never tried it, but I've seen it. So if you, you guys listening, um, are not sure whether or not dairy works for you, and keep in mind that not all symptoms are digestive. Like Kyle said, it might be in the form of silent inflammation. It might make sense for you to try to test it out on yourself. So food sensitivity tests aren't always the most reliable. You can spend a lot of money to get them done, but they're not always guaranteed. So for something like this, I really like to do a full elimination and then test the system. That's truly the best way to know for sure how this food affects you. And I do recommend this to anyone that has like random weird symptoms that just sort of like pop off and they can't explain. So one way to do this is through my Fueled in Fit program. This program has three different levels and two of them pull out dairy. But you can also do this on your own. Give it three weeks, maybe a month, um, take out dairy, but then you have to add it back in and sort of see how you react. You have to test the system. And I, I think that you want to begin with the forms that are the least likely to cause problems. And what you do is eat at least twice in a day. So so give it a good three, three weeks, maybe four weeks, absolutely no dairy, and then challenge the system by eating it twice in one day. And then just kind of step back and watch yourself for the next three or so days and see if any of your symptoms come back. You know, fatigue, gas, bloating, nausea, all of those are pretty red flags that... Um, dairy is not working for you. I'm going to interrupt here real quick and just say like, if you're going to do this, just because there's so many dairy kind of um, shows up in different ways on ingredients. So it might be better if you try to, um, you know, even Google some of the different uh, labels that dairy can have in ingredients so that a true elimination would really you'd have to take out all of it you don't want to have like little bits coming in here and there that are kind of skewing your results and then for the reintroduction I mean it can take up to four days for your body to have um, an allergic reaction or some kind of intolerant reaction show up and that's why you know you want to test and then just wait Um, so don't like immediately if nothing happens in like a day or two you immediately you know go out and start eating dairy again yeah, such, that's a really good point. And um, I mean, even like dairy-free cheese will sometimes have like casein, yeah. you know, snuck in. It's So you do have to be really conscientious. I, I, that's another, I'm just going to keep plugging this program because you don't have to worry about any of that on Fueled and Fit. So yeah. 
So that might, if you really want to try this out, that might be a good, a good program for you. And then here's the order of reintroduction, just in case you are trying this at home. This is how I recommend it. Number one is going to be fermented goats or sheep milk. So this is again, yogurt or kefir. Two, goats and sheep milk cheese. And then three would be grass-fed cow butter. Um, Kerrygold is some is a grass-fed butter that you can find in most places. Or you could also do grass-fed ghee. And then from there, if you're okay and you want to keep testing, go for full-fat raw dairy from 100% grass-fed, locally raised cows. That's going to be your best bet. Um, first, try fermented cow dairy like a yogurt or a kefir. Then you can move on to ha- um, hard cow's milk cheese. And then finally... If you want to keep going you can try out just cow's milk yeah or if you decide that dairy isn't right for you um explore some alternatives soy uh nuts like coconut almond cashew hemp seeds um, if you purchase coconut from a can make sure the lining is bpa free if you purchase anything from a carton or a bottle make sure you read the ingredients and check for added sugars or any funky ingredients if when in doubt just put it back and make sure that you're spending your money on a good product or just make it at home Um, anything from soy should be GMO free I make hemp milk every week I think that's just super easy for me Um, I use a cup of hemp seeds six cups of water a pinch of sea salt little vanilla extract and cinnamon and I blend in a high-speed blender for two minutes and it's super frothy and you'll need to shake it up each time you use it Uh, You could also do cashew or almond milk, but you need a nut milk bag with that. But just experiment. Hemp milk is my favorite just because it's the easiest. It doesn't require any straining. Agreed. It's it's higher in protein too. And just note here that unless you are making it yourself, non-dairy milk alternatives really do have a lot of added stuff, thickeners Mm -hmm. and synthetic nutrients. And um, we don't really have time to get into that right now because this is a super long episode, but um, just keep that that in mind all right so my mouth is dry from talking so much um i, <laughs> I need think a we'll snack close, <laughs> i think we'll close it out there and just keep in mind you guys our goal is to deliver clear and sound health information to everyone and anyone for free we want to do this for free so in order to make this happen we do need a little bit of help getting the word out so if you could just subscribe if you haven't done so already and leave a hopefully positive review on itunes that is truly the most powerful way to get the word out there and then of course share with your friends and your family Um, we just want to help everybody get a little bit healthier so that's a wrap thanks for joining in and we will see you guys next week see ya Thanks for joining me for this episode of the Functional Nutrition Podcast. If you'd like to submit a question to the show, fill out the contact form at erinholthealth.com. If you got something from today's show, don't forget, subscribe, leave a review, share with a friend, and keep coming back for more. Take care of you.